sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports. With the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lynn Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Good morning, good afternoon, bonjour, bonsoir, que passa, shalom, wassalamualaikum, konnichiwa, namaste. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of great things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I do, as always, want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast. iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. Do me a favor. If you could go ahead, if you could download, subscribe, rate, review, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast. If you could do that. Man, it would make my day and then some. Thank you so much. Special dedication for those who are listening to my podcast. Okay, I am recording this on a Wednesday afternoon, about five minutes after I received the news in the NBA. My Halle Berry, my Layla Roshan, my Emma Sams back in the day, that the uh, the love of my life, the NBA, that there's some news going down. My wifey, the news from the NBA is going down. Damian Lillard, yes, he has finally been traded. But no, he ain't going to Miami. Going to the Milwaukee Bucks. Three-team deal. Milwaukee, Portland, and the Phoenix Suns. Some of the main principles of the trade include Damian Lillard going to the Milwaukee Bucks, Jeru Holiday going to the Trailblazers, Yusuf Nurkic going to the Phoenix Suns, while um, while DeAndre Ayton has been traded from the Phoenix Suns to the Portland Trailblazers. I'll be getting into this in my next podcast, but for the most part, by the time that you listen to this podcast, hopefully you will have received the news and Adrian Welch now sees reporting that went down earlier today. But I just wanted to give my thoughts and opinions about that very quickly before getting into the um, NFL, the fact that, hey, when Giannis came out and said, look, I ain't married to Milwaukee, when they were speaking about the fact that you're going to be signing a long-term deal, are you going to be a Milwaukee buck for life? This was a guy who said, uh, no. I mean, basically, Milwaukee, the Bucks organization, has to prove it to me year in and year out that uh, we're going to be competing for championships. And that's not going to be the case, and I'm not going to be here. I want to be in Milwaukee. I want to I want to remain a Buck for the rest of my life. I want to surpass even the greatest NBA player of them all, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, in terms of being the greatest Buck player in organization history. For me to do that, I have to be spending 11, 12, 14, 15, 16 years, multiple championships to put up numbers that Abdul-Jabbar didn't because he's mainly known for his time with the Los Angeles Lakers more than what he did with the Milwaukee Bucks because I believe that he only played for Milwaukee five or six years before changing his life around and before wanting to get out of Milwaukee and go play 
in Los Angeles, the place where he played UCLA, where the place where he played that college basketball. So Giannis had the opportunity to go down as the greatest Milwaukee Buck of all time. But for him to do this, he said that you guys have to get me some help. And with Milwaukee, looking at the roster that they had, and the fact that, yeah, Drew Holiday, 33 years old, his play is starting to decline a little bit, even though he was an important piece for them to winning a championship a couple of years ago. Chris Middleton just signing that deal, but how much has he recovered from uh, injury that hampered his play the year before and especially showed during the playoff run? Brooke Lopez, a guy that's in his mid-30s, and with the salaries, it was a situation where Milwaukee realistically, with the team that they had before they made that trade, Probably the window of opportunity was a year or two, at two at the very most, depending upon what Miami did, depending upon what the uh, Boston Celtics and how they mature with the team that they have right now and maybe some other up-and-coming teams at the Eastern Conference. And then when you take a look at some of the teams at the Western Conference and what they're going to be doing, and you take a look at the way that the Milwaukee Bucks, again, were construed for the upcoming season, yeah, I would give the squad mainly based around Giannis, Drew and Middleton and Lopez about a two-year window to win another championship. And if that championship window was going to close after two years, then what would that mean for Adenokupo moving forward? Now, Lillard, who's, what, 32, 33 years old, around the same age range as Drew Holiday, um, brings much more, brings that second score, really brings that main score to the uh, Trailblazers. Yes, I mean, excuse me, to the um, Milwaukee Bucks. Yes, I know that Giannis still one of the top two or three players in the NBA. But one of the things that Giannis has difficulty doing, and especially rears his ugly head in terms of one of the few weaknesses of his game during the playoff season, is the ability to get buckets, is the ability to get scores against a half-court defense, against a set-up defense, or going into a playoff run against teams where, look, Everybody, once you hit the playoffs and everybody, once you get into a playoff series with your opponent, they know the plays, they know the tendencies. So it's just going to be a matter of how great of you, how great are you of a defensive or offensive player going up against that person because of the limited range on the jump shot that Adina Kupo has, the inconsistency from the free throw line of Adina Kupo, the Milwaukee Bucks time and time again, one of their Achilles heels was the fact of a go-to score. Drew Holiday was not that go-to score. Chris Middleton, especially after he got injured, was not that go-to score. Brooke Lopez is mainly used for protecting the rim and hitting three-point shots, not somebody who you can give the ball to in the post, command a double team, and then set up a mismatch from there. So now with Damian Lillard, it might lessen the defense because of the trade with the principles being Drew Holiday for Damian Lillard on Portland's side, uh, excuse me, for Milwaukee's side. It might lessen their defense, but it's going to give Milwaukee the Bucks a most important weapon in terms of being able to get a basket in crunch time, game time, important time, playoff time when um, the Bucks are in a half-court offense and need to get things done. The offense was a little bit stale. The offense was a little bit robotic. The offense was a little bit uh, behind the times when you're speaking about Mike Budenholzer and one of the reasons why he's no longer the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. Now Adrian Griffin, the assistant from last year, comes in and we'll see what he can do to get things moving. But I think as far as an offensive standpoint is concerned, now you have one of the best scores of his generation and still in the prime of his career for another year or two in terms of putting the ball in the basket in Damian Lillard. 
the now pair was Giannis and then the Kupo to go ahead and go to battle against the dynamic duos in the NBA, such as a LeBron and Anthony Davis, or you're talking about Jokic and Jamal Murray, or even in the Eastern Conference when you're speaking about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and others. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. So the first, the first, I know, domino has fallen. Now we'll see what's going to be happening with James Harden in this situation. Does Daryl Morey dig in his heels even more? in terms of not trading James Harden anywhere unless he gets a King's Ransom because of the move that the Milwaukee Bucks made. And I think making the Milwaukee Bucks a better squad, really putting them in an advantageous position to win themselves a championship. So good move for the um, Milwaukee Bucks. And and look, man, for the um, Portland Trailblazers, this is going to be a situation where you have Drew Holiday, a pro's pro, one of the best teammates, one of the most mature uh, professionals in the NBA. You have such a young team with Scoot Henderson and Shadadian Sharp and, and and those guys, the fact that uh, he could come in and he could be a mentor and he could be a guy that can really uh, help Scoot make that transition from being in the G League to being in the NBA. The fact that Scoot is, what, 19, 20 years old, somewhere around there. So the maturity level in a situation where you're Portland, where you're trying to figure out, is Scoot that guy? Can we build our organization around Scoot Henderson? This is going to be the guy that we peg. You want to give this person the most the most ample opportunities, the best opportunities to show us that he can be that guy or he can't be that guy. And having Drew Holiday in there to help him guide through the rigors of the NBA and, and, and what it entails to be an NBA basketball player, to be a professional, I think that was a good move by the Portland Trailblazers and to bring in DeAndre Ayton, a guy who a couple of years ago, if you remember, when Phoenix made that run to the NBA championship where they lost in six games to the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, I remember that contest. I remember the playoff series that Phoenix had against the Denver Nuggets and the way that DeAndre Ayton I think lockdown is not a good phrase when you're speaking about the matchup that he had against uh, Nikola Jokic, but the fact that he played very well and caused great, um, and it was very competitive and was a challenge to Jokic. That was one of the main reasons why Aiton received that huge salary. One of the reasons why he was put in position to do so uh, because of the performance that he had a couple of years ago in the playoffs against Nikola Jokic of the Nuggets at that time. I mean, this is a situation where if somehow, some way, Chauncey Billups, the coach of the Trailblazers, can bring out that DeAndre Ayton, and because of the fact that, look, Portland is not going to be competing for championships, and let's see what uh, DeAndre has on the offensive side of the floor. When he was up there playing with Devin Booker and then the acquisition late of Kevin Durant, uh, Chris Paul with the basketball, there were other scorers on that team where DeAndre Ayton really didn't have an opportunity to showcase what he had on the offensive side of the uh, of the basket, of, of the basketball court. Now, him going to Portland, I would like to see him get opportunities to show whether he can or cannot be, maybe not a 18 to 22 point per game back to the basket type of, of score. But, you know, someone who might be able to do some things on the pick and roll, he does have 12 to 15 foot range on his shot. So get him a little bit more involved in the offense and maybe that will sweeten his appetite to play defense, rim protect, 
play pick and roll defense and do some of the dirty work that is still needed from big men in the NBA. So good move, good deal. And for the Phoenix Suns, you still got Kevin Durant, you still got um, Devin Booker, and you still have Bradley Beal. So that's the main three to build around. Aiton was something to where it was kind of a salary dump, picking in Yusuf Nurchich. It's a guy from Portland where it's going to give the Phoenix Suns the ability to get a little bit of scoring on the offensive end from him, but also mainly rebounding a big body, that type of thing, which you're going to need. So in all in all, really don't see too much of a downside for any of the teams that participated in this trade, uh, especially in lieu of what the expectations are going into this season for each one of those teams before that trade was made. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I just wanted to get that out. That news just came down in terms of Damian Lillard being traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. That just came down a few minutes before I started recording recording this podcast. Week three of the NFL. Chapter three of the NFL. Verse three of the NFL. Any way that you want to look at it. So here we go. Before we go ahead and start speaking about week three, let's set the foundation. Let's go ahead and revisit what we were speaking about uh, the first two weeks. What we learned so far after the first two weeks of the season going into week three. The best teams in the league so far going into week three. I know that many people had Miami. They had Dallas. They had San Francisco. They had Baltimore teams that started off 0-2. Remember, I was speaking about them on my last podcast in terms of what the expectations should be, always having that glass half full type of mentality and approach when you're speaking about whether you're New England, whether you're Cincinnati, whether you're the LA Chargers, whether you're Minnesota, whether you're Chicago, whether you're Houston, whether you are Arizona, find something fine. Find the sunshine amongst the clouds that you may put there. Um, no, no participation, no, 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 none of that stuff. No, no rain, none of that kind of stuff. Always look for the sunlight shining through, even if the team is going to stink. So that's what we were speaking about with the 0-2 teams. And basically, what would it mean for some of the teams with higher expectations? We're not at the point yet. I always keep saying, and I'm always going to keep reiterating, that the first four weeks, five weeks, six weeks of the season, R-E-L-A-X. Relax, baby. There's no time to P-A-N-I-C when it comes to your teams, whether they're going to be doing well, whether they're reaching expectations or not. It's not W-O-R-T-H-I-T. N-O-W-A-Y. You know what I'm saying? So, look, so... You know, what would it mean for these 0-2 teams that then fall 0-3? And again, if you're the Arizona Cardinals going into week three, who cares? Because I want them to go. If you're an Arizona Cardinals fan for real, you want them to go 0-17. Why? Because you want the game-changing quarterback like Caleb Williams to start to rebuild to the journey of being relevant. Now, I know that they beat Dallas. And look, if they finish 1-16 and get the number one pick and they beat Dallas, even better. The fact that the team that's sorry can go ahead and beat the Dallas Cowboys. I'll get into the Cowboys and that performance that they had a little bit later on in this segment. Don't give me some excuses about losing Stefan Diggs to a torn ACL in practice having any type of effect on this game or the fact that uh, they were missing a couple of their offensive linemen. I'm sorry, did the offensive linemen play defense for Arizona and Joshua Dobbs to score 20-something points on them? No, I'll get to the Cowboys 
in just a quick second. But, um, yeah, expectations. I mean, Cincinnati had a big victory over the Los Angeles Rams. Joe Burrow looked much better than he did the first two weeks of the season to get the Cincinnati Bengals their first win of the season. The Los Angeles Chargers, great road victory over the Minnesota Vikings, despite the fact that Brandon Staley once again put the defense in a horrible position by trying to go for it on fourth and short um, deep inside their territory. One thing I will say about this, about Brandon Staley. Now, one thing I will say, if you're an employee of somebody, if you're working for somebody in terms of a supervisor or a boss, there's one thing, there's one thing, as a boss, as me being a worker and you being a boss, the only thing that I ask for you is honesty, being yourself, and consistency. If I do something, I know that my boss is going to handle it this way. If I do something positive, I'm going to be knowing that my boss is going to be handling it this way. If I do something wrong, I know my boss is going to be handling it this way. If this situation comes down the pike at my job, I know that my boss, my supervisor is going to be handling it this way. Don't leave me with any surprises. Don't leave me with any type of head scratching. And don't leave me walking away from my job not knowing who you are as a human being in terms of be yourself. If you're an asshole, be an asshole. If you're a dick, be a dick. If you're a great guy, be a great guy. Just don't give me any type of okey-doke type of situations, right? So with Brandon Staley, people are yelling and screaming, I can't believe he went for it on fourth down. What's one thing that we've known about Brandon Staley since becoming the coach of the Los Angeles Chargers? He's going to go for it on fourth down. If it's fourth and short, Nine times out of ten, Brandon Staley is going to go for it on fourth down. So if you have been part of the Bradley, Bradley Staley regime in terms of players and such, this is not a surprise. This is not a situation where in that scenario with the Vikings late in that game where a first down basically could have won the game for you, it shouldn't have been a surprise for the Los Angeles Chargers that Brandon Staley said, we're going to go ahead and go for it. So those guys should be prepared. Those guys should be ready to get the job done. Now, play calling and everything like that, Kellen Moore, the new offensive coordinator coming in, not part of the culture, not part of the program, not part of the history of Brandon Staley's regime of being coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. But the players itself should know that, hey, when we get in this position, this is what's going to be happening. So one thing, whether that if, if he makes the first down, he's gutsy, he's a genius, this, that, and the other. If they don't get the first down, then he's a loser, and he, I don't know what he's doing. This is terrible. This is horrible. As long as you're being consistent when those scenarios, when those situations come to fruition, then for the most part, the players, the owners, and the organization, and the fan base, really, for the most part, should not have a problem about that. The decision should not be criticized. Maybe the execution, maybe the play call, you could question, especially if it doesn't work. But in terms of, I can't believe he went for it on fourth down. Really? How long have you been watching the Chargers under Staley coach play football? So the Chargers coming away with a big victory over the Minnesota Vikings. And man, what does this mean for the Vikes? Last year's NFC North divisional championship team, what does it mean now that they're 0-3? Remember we were speaking about last week, oh my goodness gracious, what's going to be happening for teams who are 0-2 if they go 0-3? The fact that their chances of making the playoffs after starting 0-3 are minuscule. Can the Minnesota Vikings be that team in a division where, I don't know, I mean, Atlanta, 
snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in that game against Green Bay. Chicago is a complete another dumpster fire. Yeah, you have you have the uh, Detroit Lions getting a good win to go to uh, two and one, but it looks like in the Central, I don't know yet who we can determine is going to be a real threat. Minnesota starting off zero and three if they can reverse some things and get the job done. Look, last season when they started off ten and three or nine and one or ten and one or something like that, a lot of these one possession games, a lot of these close games, they were winning and they were winning all the time. It seemed like the ball was bouncing their way. It only comes back to common sense that the mean is going to go the other way and the bounces this season are not going Minnesota's way or they're not taking the advantages that were given to them last season that they took advantage of. They're not doing that this season. But then again, we're only three weeks into the season, not quite ready yet to write off the Minnesota Vikings. So, you know, some of the things that we learned after two weeks, Dallas, San Francisco, Baltimore, Miami, all very impressive, Minnesota. So now after week three, now we're three weeks into the season. Now we're three weeks into the books. Now we're three weeks into the play. Now we're three episodes in of what you're binging this season in terms of the entertainment program, this entertainment television known as the National Football League. What can we deduce so far through three chapters, three weeks of the season? Miami, San Francisco, Philadelphia, probably best team in the league. I can almost compare Philadelphia similar to what the Georgia Bulldogs are going through right now. Now, of course, the only difference is the fact that Georgia won the national championship, winning two championships in a row. So maybe their Malays going through the regular season seems like they're boredom despite the uh, difference of opinion from Kirby Smart. I'll get to that in my last segment of the podcast. But um, their malaise that Georgia is going right now, not as dominant as they were the past couple of years, still they're undefeated, ranked high, considered one of the teams to win the championship, the favorites to win the championships. And the NFL, you can almost apply that to the Philadelphia Eagles, the conference champions, maybe not the Super Bowl champions, but uh, against uh, Tampa Bay on Monday night, they were fine. They were good. They were solid. Their defense is great. Jalen Carter, the rookie from Georgia, seems to be a steal at the first round pick. Seems to uh, not have been, not, is not displaying some of the red flags that had many teams pass on him till they came to a Philadelphia, which had an extra draft pick uh, from the trade that they had with A.J. Brown coming to them, acquisition from the Tennessee Titans, giving them an extra first round draft pick. So using that to take a flyer, to take a chance on someone like a um, Brown from Georgia has played paid off so so far, um, but uh, so far I think in terms of just dominance, in terms of impressiveness, Miami and San Francisco are the two best teams in the league. Now, depending upon if you enjoy the flavor of a strong defense or you're wild by the offensive performance by the Miami Dolphins, whether you want to put Miami number one, whether you want to put San Francisco number one. Really doesn't matter. If you want to have San Francisco, Miami, Miami, San Francisco as terms at teams one or two in the uh, NFL so far this season, fine. Remember, R E L A X, the season is J U S T S T A R T I N G. There's no need to P A N I C. There's a lot of football to be P L A Y E D, not P L A Y, P L A Y E D. Not play, but play duh. So there you go. San Francisco, 
Beat up pretty good on the uh, New York Giants on Thursday night. 30-12, to 12, offense has scored more than 30 points every game this season. Defense is ranked number one in the league. Joey Bosa has taken that money and has been impressive against the Giants. Solid, solid performance. Kyle Shanahan, Brock Purdy get to the game. We're still speaking about, hey, look, yeah, we won, and it was fine, and it was wonderful. We'll take a victory in the NFL anytime. But uh, there's still some things that we need to uh, clear up. There's still some things that we can get better at. Purdy threw for a pretty nice had a pretty nice game of 310 yards and two touchdowns. Did I ever tell you the story about the girl, Stacy Purdy, that was in elementary school? And my friends and me used to make fun of her by saying, hey, what's up, Stacy Purdy? You're pretty, all right. Purdy ugly. But uh, Brock Purdy threw for us. Stacey is doing well. I'm not quite sure she's doing much better than me. I, in fact, I hope so. Hope that she's married, has a couple of kids doing wonderful, no ill will. It's just young folks acting stupid, which I was at that time. But Brock Purdy threw for 310 yards, two touchdowns, also had two near interceptions on the opening drive that his receivers needed to break up. Few stalls in the red zone, a botch snap. That nearly became a costly turnover. But look, man, if you saw that game, the game really was won in the first quarter drives on third down conversions. Consecutive third downs in 16 and 13 were uh, were made by San Francisco, led the scoring drives. So throughout the game, strong third down conversions led uh, to the uh, victory. Defense against New York was dominated, which was dominant. They generated 23 pressures on 34 dropbacks. Again, Joey Bosa, six pressures, first sack of the season. Javon Hargrave had five pressures. So, yeah, there was a good performance by the San Francisco 49ers playing next week against Arizona. If you want to take temperature, if you want to uh, see exactly where we stand, if you want to use this measurement, it'll be interesting to see what the San Francisco 49ers do next week against the Arizona Cardinals. Arizona coming off this game, this victory against the Dallas Cowboys. So if you want to be speaking about, hey, where does Dallas rank? Where is San Francisco at? If you want to try to see the difference between the two teams, the 49ers and the Cowboys, if the 49ers come out and destroy the Arizona Cardinals, that's going to add more fuel to the flames, more fuel to the fire, more gasoline to the engine to roar on about, oh, my goodness gracious, see, I told you, Dallas, no good, Arizona, excuse me, um, San Francisco, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, though, if Arizona plays a competitive game against San Francisco or, my goodness, beats them, then maybe some of the hand-wringing and, and, um, hand-wringing and criticism labeled on the Cowboys for this past week will quiet down just a little bit because we are under the assumption that Arizona is one of the worst, if not the worst, team in the NFL. While they may be by the time everything is all said and done, it'll be interesting again so early in the season where we need to what? Spell it for me. R-E-L-A. Huh? What? X? Yeah, we'll find out exactly where Arizona is, which in tail can give us a better understanding so far early in the season the difference between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers yet. But, of course, also we have to see what's happening with the Dallas Cowboys this next week. So you want to put San Francisco number one in terms of the power rankings so far this early in the season? Fine. You can go ahead and do that. But Miami, and again, I, I don't know. Wendell, where do you, who, who, what are your top five teams? I don't know, man. I have no idea. Does it really matter? 
does it really matter what the top five teams are? Um, which teams have looked best uh, through five games? I give you, I gave you my teams, right? Like, let me give you my top five: Miami, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Kansas City, and Buffalo. Screw it, right? I don't know. Who knows? What is it going to look like? Where are those teams going to be ranked after week eight? Where are they going to be ranked after week 12? Where are they going to be ranked after week 13? Where are they going to be ranked? Long season, baby. So, you know, top five, top four, I don't know. And right now I really don't put any stock into power rankings this early in the season. But Miami, hey, put on one of the most dominant offensive performances in decades, the NFL I guess you could say what Miami did the NFL's version of, the, but but this happened the entire game, right? This didn't just go on for just a half. Miami did the NFL version the entire game of what Oregon did to Colorado in the first half, uh, college football style on Saturday, right? You know, we didn't we didn't need to go into the Miami locker room for uh, Coach McDaniel's to be sitting up there talking about, gentlemen, let me tell you something. They play for clicks. We play for win. Why do why do white folks always got to get that, that try to get be, try to sound more thuggish, urban that type of thing? Man, let me tell y'all something right here. Those motherfuckers play for clicks. We play for motherfucking wins. You know what I'm saying? So you know what? Let's just get this. the Hollywood ending, gentlemen. It it ends tonight. Like all right, man. I don't expect Dan Lanning to go out there and say, "Gentlemen, let me tell you something. They play for clicks. We play for wins." All right, the Hollywood ending, it ends right now. Of course, Dan Lennon could have said it in that tone, and Oregon still would have put the smack down, would have put the beat down on Oregon. But uh, I, I, lo- I love, <laughs> it kind of cracks me up when 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 coaches or leaders, they, they, they try to get that man voice, right? They try to get that deep Negro voice. Let me tell you something, man. I ain't here for this fucking bullshit. We're going to go out there and kick their fucking ass and fuck that shit, right? Now who's with me? Let's go. Fuck this, man. Fuck Dion. Fuck Prime. Yeah, okay. Thanks. He, he didn't go. You know he wanted to, but that type of bullshit. You know, every yeah, coaches got to be up. Why, why do coaches have to be up there yelling and screaming? That's why it would have been perfect for me to play for a Bill Belichick or a Tony Dungy. Because they're just like, man, let's just go out there and whoop some ass. You know what you're supposed to do. We're the better team. Let's go out there and do it. I mean, someone is about to smack you in the mouth. Someone's going to be out there to try to lay the smack down on you. I mean, these are professional football players. What do I need to be hyped up for? What do I need to be ready for? The fact that if I'm an offensive lineman, I'm going to be going up against a guy who can roadblock me. If I'm going, if, if I'm playing quarterback, you know, I'm going up against a defense that's going to look to uh, take me out legally by uh, putting a smack down on me. I mean, you know, I'm going to be playing a very physical game. I should be mentally ready, prepared. I don't need to be taken up to the next level by some coach up there talking about, let's go, men. Okay, are we ready for the uh, game? Okay, I'm ready for the pregame level. All right, guys, I'm ready for the pregame level. Let's go, men. We need to get – all right, so coach, 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 bring it up a notch, would you? But uh, I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, Denver got the HBCU treatment when they played the elite college football team for the check to support their athletic department. You know, when um, Miami did Denver, like um, – like um, I don't know, like LSU did LSU did Grambling, right? Seventy to twenty. Seventy to twenty. The seventy points, third most points in NFL history. And really, Coach McDaniel could have gone for seventy seven or eighty four if he was feeling Dan Landing ish. Miami offense had seven hundred twenty six total yards, 
They played without Jalen Waddle on the sideline while in uh, concussion protocol. It was the second highest yardage total in NFL history. Miami had 350 yards rushing. They averaged more than eight yards per attempt. Rookie running back Devon Ekney, whatever, rushed for 203 yards alone. Woo! And Vince Joseph, the defensive coordinator for Denver, still has his job? My goodness gracious, what video or audio does he have of Sean Payton? I don't know what, does he have audio or visual or something of Sean Payton murdering somebody? I mean, my goodness gracious, is, is, is there something going on? Was he the one that really killed Kennedy? And Vance Joseph has some type of uh, footage of that? Because that's the only way I can see it, of, of him being able to keep his job after that situation. Now, Sean Payton came up and said, hey, look, man, we're three games in, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to make any type of uh, this, that, and the others. We're going to watch film. We're going to get better. All right. But, man, that's that's like, and I, and I know R-E-L-A-X, but you can't give up that many P-O-I-N-T-S. I don't give a damn if it's week one, week 17, scout team practice, off-season, OTAs. I don't care if 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 they're playing Madden. I don't. He's done uh, seventy points and seven hundred and twenty six yards. And my man Vance Joseph still has a job. Woo, man, that's uh, okay. Okay, so the question is going to be: Are the Dolphins going to set the all time scoring record this season? Because the most points for a season is six hundred and six, and that was put up by uh, Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos a couple of years ago. Um, that was 2013, in fact. The 2023 Dolphins are on pace for 737 points. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. The 2003 Denver Broncos, they did that in 16 games. You're computing this for an extra game. The record for points per game by a single team for a single season is almost 39, 38.8. That was set by the 1950. I don't know if they were Cleveland Rams or Los Angeles Rams, but by the Rams organization, the Dolphins currently are averaging 43.3 points per game. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to come down to earth. I think the more tape that you receive, that these teams receive, and the injuries start to happen, the season gets longer, I think that's going to be falling down a little bit. But when everything is all said and done, after 17 games, and the dust is clear, the dust is settled, the credits are rolling for the season being over. The final chapter is finished for the season. I don't see why the Miami Dolphins can't average at least, what, 33, 34, almost 35 points a game. And in an age where, yeah, offense is off the charts and the rules are kind of tilted widely to the offensive side of the ball, the fact that the Dolphins, through 17 games, can still put up an average of over 30, 35 points, if that's going to be the case, that's going to be most impressive. The fact is going to be that most of the time when we take a look at the great offenses in NFL history and we compare it to the great defenses in NFL history, most of the time the great defenses in NFL history are the ones that are winning the championships. And when we think about the great offensive teams compared to the great or historically great defensive teams, we can kind of conjure the names of defenses or teams that had great defenses rather than teams that had great offenses. For instance, we all know about the 1985 Chicago Bears. We all know about the 1986 New York Giants, at least those who know football should. We all know about the 2001 Baltimore Ravens. Those will go down the lore. I mean, when we speak about 
the great nicknames in NFL history. And we speak about the Purple People Eaters, the Minnesota Vikings of the 1970s. When we speak about the Steel Curtain, the dynasty, which was the Pittsburgh Steelers of the 1970s. When we think about um, the uh, Fearsome Foursome, Deacon Jones, Merlin Olson, that group, the Los Angeles Rams of the late 60s. When we think, when we, when we think about those type of when we think about that on that scale, it's mainly tilted toward the defense in, in terms of historical greatness, remembrance, longevity, remembrance, and that type of uh, situation. We, we really don't think too much about the 1998 Minnesota Vikings. We don't think too much about the 2013 Denver Broncos. Why? Because for the most part, when you take a look at those teams that I just named, with the ex- exception of the Vikings and the Los Angeles Rams, those defenses were the catalyst for those teams winning Super Bowls. Not even really part of a dynasty, with the exclusion, of course, of the Steel Curtain or the Steelers' defense of the 1970s. But the Minnesota Vikings, the Purple People leaders, they made it the four Super Bowl championships in six years, but they never won that championship. When you take a look at the Los Angeles Rams, they made it to the playoffs a couple of times, but they lost to the Vikings in NFC Championship games on the road. So, you know, while the moniker might be a little bit a little bit falsy on the reasons why these great defenses were known because of their championships or their Super Bowl wins, um, that's really not the case compared to, again, a team that is great on offense. I mean, the 49ers of the 80s won their championships, one of the teams that you could argue were one of the teams of the decade in 1980. They were more known for Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and, and John Taylor and Roger Craig and Tom Rathman and, 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 and those guys more than, say, their defense, which was underrated. The Miami Dolphins of the 1970s, the no-name defense. So all of this goes back and forth, which is all to me to say that when we're trying to decide, well, which team is going to be standing at the end of the season to win a championship, when we're looking at which team should we be ranking the best in the NFL after three weeks, and you want to say the Miami Dolphins because of offense, and you want to say the San Francisco 49ers because of defense, these are also some of the things you might want to take into the brain and kind of marinate with before you serve that 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 dish, which is this is the best team in the NFL after week three for the 2023 season. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The other takeaways after week three, chapter three, Kansas City and Buffalo have rebounded, shall we say, after underwhelming performances week one. I know people were speaking about what the hell's wrong with Josh Allen and what's going on with Josh Allen. And Josh Allen is still continuing his reckless ways, his inconsistent ways after week one's performance against the New York Jets in a, in a disappointing loss considering the Jets lost Aaron Rodgers for plays into the season. So essentially they lost to Zach Wilson, that quarterback. And we've seen how the New York Jets, even half glass full folks to the hilt, have kind of taken a dip a little bit after Zach Wilson's performances in week two and three. Joe Namath being one of them. I don't think Joe Namath was ever on the Zach Wilson bandwagon. But uh, we've seen the Jets now because of poor quarterback play, the clouds of dissent the clouds of frustration, the storm clouds of anger and panic seem to be formulating over the boogie down concerning the New York Jets. So Buffalo lost to that team. Oh, my goodness gracious, Josh Allen, this, that, and the other. They rebounded nicely. They put a spank and they put a beat down. They put a whooping on my Washington commanders, something fierce. 
37 to 7, speaking about getting a dose of reality, right? Kansas City rebounding and showing the fact that, remember after week one, where they lost to uh, they lost to uh, Detroit to open up the season. Oh, my goodness gracious, Travis Kelsey's injured and the receivers can't catch a ball and blah, blah, blah. What's going on, this, that, and the other? Well, Kansas City had the equivalent of a homecoming opponent in Chicago, in which they won 41 to 10. Uh, they led 34 to nothing at the half. Patrick Mahomes threw three touchdowns, averaged over eight yards per attempt. So the offense scored on seven straight possessions. So they seem to be back in the fold. Uh, no, 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 don't even, no, I'm not, no, I'm not biting. No, uh-uh, take that, take that line out of the water because this fish ain't biting on some of the aftermath stuff of the Kansas City or the probably the most interesting thing during the Kansas City-Chicago game. I'm not going there. I don't know the girl. I don't know the woman. I know that she's worth about $750 million. Good for her. Um, I guess there's reports saying that, you know, she is a good person and, uh, you know, she, she's helping defeat Satan. She's helping defeat Satan, a.k.a. T-R-U-M-P, in the upcoming um, presidential election, trying to beat Satan and all of his acolytes, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bobert and all those other pieces of shit. So, you know, I, I, I thank her very greatly for that and the influence that she's going to be having in terms of uh, eradicating Satan and all of his disciples for uh, for the time being. So I thank, I thank her for that, but I'm not going to comment. I don't care. Good for them. Hip, hip, hooray. I'm, I just want to watch football. I just want to watch the football. All that other nonsense, I don't care about. Now, if it decides you, if it, if it gets you going, if seeing her cheer for her band scoring the touchdown, is that gets you up on your, on your seat, out of your seat, and start dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie or dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas, two songs that that woman couldn't come close to uh, replicating in any decent way, well, then good for you. Way to go. Hip, hip, hooray. I don't get excited. I'm not interested. She ain't Aretha. She ain't Anita, and she ain't Mary J. She ain't Gladys Knight. She ain't any of them. She ain't Diana Ross. She ain't Faux Ballard. She ain't any of them. She ain't Mary Wells. She ain't Carla Thomas. She ain't any of them. I mean, hell, she ain't even Janet Jackson, let alone Mariah Carey, Whitney, and all them others. So, hey, let, let them let them young folks, I don't know what her age group is, let them young folks have their fun and do all this kind of stuff. The, her relationship and the Titans relationship, I don't give a damn about. I don't care about, so I've done enough speaking of that bullshit. So I guess you could say, stupid-ass stupid Wendell, I guess that fish did bite on that uh, hook. So there you go. But, uh, yeah, so Kansas City had rebounded very well through three seasons. We'll see where that leads to next. The Bills brought, again, my Washington commanders back into reality. 37-3 drubbing. Bill's defense was the star of the show, really. Nine sacks on <laughs> Sam Howell. Forced five turnovers, including a pick six by A.J. Esprenza in the fourth quarter. So, look, the last two games, Buffalo has outscored his last two opponents 75-13. They played the Las Vegas Raiders, and they played my Washington Commanders. So they own the league's second-best point differential behind Miami. So, is Buffalo back? I don't know if they ever went anywhere, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing well. And the fact that they're getting great defensive performances, albeit against Jimmy Garoppolo and Sam Howell, you know, again, R-E-L-A-X, not getting to H-I-G-H or L-O-W. High or low. So there you go. Overreaction. Should we get to it now? 
I, I, I know Cowboy fans are out there. I know that y'all losing your minds. How the fuck did we lose to Arizona? 28-16. Are you for real? Are you for real? The Arizona flipping Cardinals, the team that's tanking, the team that's trying to get the number one pick, we lose to that squad, a team in the Cowboys that's supposed to be having expectations of playing in the Super Bowl and we can't beat the Arizona Cardinals? Then, you know, hey, Dallas starts the first two weeks of the season as Super Bowl contenders, right? Beating up on the Giants, beating up on uh, – who else did they beat on? They beat on the Jets, that's right. They uh, beat on the two New York teams that play in New Jersey by a combined 70 points, right, by a combined score of 70 to 10. They shut out the Giants and this, that, and the other. Oh, this, that, and the other. I can't believe it. Dallas defense is great. Michael Parsons, uh, this guy's the next Lawrence Taylor. All right. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? R-E-L-A-X, man. We're two games into the season. Yeah, I know that the track record of Michael Parsons, I know that there's more on the resume to make those determinations in more than two games, but can we slow down with the all-time great linebackers and playmakers in the NFL, please? Even as great as Michael Parsons has been, can we at least slow down just a little bit? I heard that Michael Parsons, who did he remind you of? Lawrence Taylor. Oh Lord have mercy. Then they always try to then they always try to clean it up by saying, Well, I I I don't mean that, you know, he is Lawrence Taylor. I mean that, you know, he's just there's, a, there's some things about him that remind me of Lawrence Taylor. What, that he plays football and he's black? Come on, now. Let's just kind of slow down, calm down on that. So the Cowboys go from being one of the elite teams the first two weeks of the season to having to deal with the first crisis of the season, right? Again, Cowboys playing without Trevor Diggs out for the season with a torn ACL and Zach Martin to start the game. Tyron Smith was active but never played. Dak Prescott, right? Here we go. 25 of 40, 250 yards, a touchdown and an interception. Passer rating of 78. Dallas scored one touchdown against the Arizona defense. Here we go. Right? Here we go. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. Dak Prescott, blah, blah, blah. Now Mike McCarthy's getting a little bit of uh, razz, getting some criticism, right? Oh, you replaced Kellen Moore because you wanted to call the offensive plays and it looked a lot like your the end of your tenure in Green Bay where your offense was stale, where your offense was rudimentary, where your offense was very basic, and it caused Aaron Rodgers to hate you of him being your head coach. So here we go. We start with that nonsense again. So, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not going there. And, and, yes, everybody says, well, the reason why that we're getting so upset or the reason why we're putting so much flame on this fire when it comes to our, our barbecuing, filleting, the performance by Dallas is because this is a team that has Super Bowl aspirations. Should I remind you that last year the Kansas City football team lost to Indianapolis? Should I remind you that Urban Meyer's first win of the season came against the Buffalo Bills a couple of years ago, a team that at the time was one of the elites? Can I remind you, if you go back in time, that every team that has won a Super Bowl has always had a bad game? Can I remind you that even great dynasties have had teams that they played against over the years that they, for some reason, the team that they were playing against was completely inferior, and for some reason they would always lose to them or they would lose to them more times than they should? Didn't affect the Steelers when they would lose to the Cincinnati Bengals or to the Browns, right? That every, every team that loses, every team that wins the Super Bowl always has a bad loss. Every team that plays in the NFL for 17 games, 16 games, 14 games, 12 games had the loss. That's not something that's just happened in the last couple of years. This has been happening for almost over 75 years. So, yeah, Dallas lost to Arizona. 
Yeah, Arizona expectations are to tank and get the number one pick. Dallas expectations is to compete for the uh, Super Bowl. Every team has a bad game. Let's just hope that if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, that one bad game that every team has this season, that for Dallas it happened in week three. And we'll monitor what's going on with offensive coordinator play calling or offensive play calling Mike McCarthy and $40 million a year plus quarterback Dak Prescott. Because you can make the argument, I don't care how stale or how boring or how or out of date the offense is. If, you're, if that Prescott is going to be making 40-something million dollars next year and expect to pick up an option that's going to pay him 50-something million dollars, then he needs to do better than 25 or 40, one touchdown, one interception, and just be a big player or just, or just blend in with the crowd. We'll see. It's one game. Teams that are going down roads, though, before I get out of here, teams that are going down roads that will be disappointing compared to preseason expectations. Again, I, I don't know exactly what's going on in Chicago, but um, Matt Eberflus, uh, the bye week, the way things are going, it looked like he may be out of a job. I don't know. There's no reporting or anything like that. But just if you take a look at the history of the NFL or recent history in the NFL, when you have expectations that the Chicago Bears had, and not only on the field, things are horrendous, but then you take a look at what's going on off the field, especially this past week with the Chicago Bears, it's hard for me to think that Matt Everflus, if things continue this way, is going to have a job after the bye week. And, and, and what's going on with Justin Fields? He's been horrible. Am I speaking about he needs to be benched? No. If I'm making some proclamation that's going to be written stone about him uh, being a failure or anything like that, no. After three games, no, no, no. After everything that's going around, no, no, no. But still, bottom line is the thir- first three games, he's been terrible. He's been horrible. He has regressed. If you take a look at the quarterbacks and their expectations for this upcoming year, I don't think anybody has been more of a disappointment at the quarterback position than Justin Fields. Through three games this season, 526 yards, three touchdowns, four interceptions. He's only completing 58% of his passes. His passer rating is somewhere around 68. Against Kansas City, he looked frustrated. He looked uh, confused. He looked like he had no confidence in what they were doing. 11 for 22, 99 yards, touchdown, and an interception with a ratio, passing ratio, or passing uh, uh, rating of almost 59. If that continues, here's the situation, though. Let's just say what happens, the Bears continue this momentum the wrong way. Eberflus gets fired, Eberflus gets fired and fired during the uh, bye week. They're bringing an interim coach or the OC, DC, whatever, whatever, the DC left. He he was going to be, he was dealing with mental issues or emotional issues or whatever. So this past week, he Resigned. So if you fire Eberflus, I don't know what, the offensive coordinator, the special teams guy, I don't know, he becomes the interim. And then at the um, end of the season, you clean house and you're bringing a new general manager and you're bringing a new coach. And that general manager and that coach, they're not married to Justin Fields. So let's just say, for instance, that Chicago finds themselves in a top three, top five position. Let's say they have draft pick number one or number two, or number five. What prevents the new regime, general manager, and coach is concerned if this continues to spiral downward for Justin Fields? He doesn't have his coach. 
He doesn't have the GM who drafted him. He doesn't have folks in the scouting department that said, yeah, 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 go ahead and draft him. What does that mean now if Chicago had the number one pick and this new GM and, and, and coach are in love with the Caleb Williams? What happens if they have the number two pick and they're in love with Drake May? What happens if they have the number five pick and they're in love with Shador Sanders? It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. So, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that, hey, this is a done deal, but just in terms of the way things are going, if they continue this way for Justin Fields, um, the decision to continue with him as the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears, if you take a look at the franchise and you take a look at the history of quarterbacks with that franchise and, they, and, and, and how much of a longing that the Bears organization have, have had to get themselves that great quarterback and hoping and praying that their prayers were answered by them drafting Justin Fields in the 2021 draft. To give up on him after three years might be a little harsh, but again, if you're looking at a position with the Chicago Bears, Justin Fields doesn't uh, doesn't get any better, and you have the opportunity for a new coaching and general managing regime to draft someone else, it could happen, which could spell the end of Justin Fields' quarterbacking career with the Chicago Bears or the starting quarterback position with the starting with the Chicago Bears. We'll look into that later on down the season, later on in the book that we're reading called the NFL season 2023. And take a take a look at this. The 2021 draft class, the quarterbacking draft class of 2021, man, that's in some serious trouble of shaping up to be one of the worst draft class ever for quarterbacks. If you think about it, number one, Trevor Lawrence, number two, Zach Wilson, number three, pick uh, Trey Lance, number 11, Justin Fields, and number 15, Mac Jones, right? I mean, Trevor Lawrence seems to be doing well. He's making strides. Bad loss against Houston, though. Bad loss against Houston. But Trevor Lawrence is all right. He's safe. But Zach Wilson? I mean, we've seen the furrier, we've seen the furrier and the negative uh, stuff that's, that's coming New York's way, considering his skills. Trey Lance is, even, is no longer with the 49ers anymore. I don't know when he'll ever see the field. He's uh, Did he even suit up? He's not even suiting up for the Cowboys, right? Justin Fields, we've already talked about his uh, deficiencies and what he's in danger of. And then Matt Jones, he seems to be a good quarterback. He seems to be a pretty good quarterback. But does he look like a quarterback that can win a Super Bowl? Maybe if you surround him with high-level talent along the defense or, or weaponry, but he doesn't look like a franchise quarterback either. He looks good. He looks like a solid quarterback so far, but does he look like a franchise? Does he have the intangibles? Does he have the skills? Does he have what it takes to be a franchise quarterback? I don't know. I don't, I don't evaluate quarterbacks like the uh, pros who are making five, six, seven figures do, so I don't know, but I think that's a good question to ask, especially if Mac Jones continues the way that he's going. Not bad, not great. He's just there. He's just good. You know, he's just a, a pretty girl. He ain't whoopy and he ain't Hallie. He's just he's just dateable. But are you going to I don't think so. Denver Broncos, Sean Payton starting the season 0-3. Last season under Nathaniel Hackett, the Broncos were two and one. Oops. <laughs> Man, do you realize that the Broncos, new management, new ownership, do you, do you realize that they had to pay New Orleans to uh, get 
Peyton to become their coach, gave away a first and second round pick, third round pick, all given to the New Orleans Saints. Um, I don't know what to say about the uh, Denver Broncos. I mean, this is a situation, 70 points. At least people can stop asking and clamoring and evaluating and doing all this kind of stuff about what's going on with uh, what's going on with um, Russell Wilson, right? At least Russell Wilson gets a reprieve from being scrutinized. But because when you give up 70 points, woo, man, now the Broncos are 0-3. Very, very disappointing start to the season. So we'll see if things can turn around. We'll see if things can change. Again, these are some things that are just marinating right now. These are just some of the things that are building the foundation. The foundation of this season has not even been built yet. So week three into the NFL, calm down, relax. There's a lot of stuff going on right now in the NFL season that's being put together way, 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 way too early to be making any type of, uh, you know, concrete-type statements. After I get back and boogie, um, speaking of uh, beatdowns or whatever like that, Colorado, let me tell you something, man. They're in it for clicks. We're in it for victories. Clicks, says, says Oregon's football program, which, I don't know, changes their uniform like once every other play, right? They're in it for clicks. Colorado is in it for clicks and attention, right? I'm sorry. Don't you guys have a big billboard on Times Square talking about bodacious? I mean, you guys are being bodacious when you're trying to publicize your quarterback for the Heisman Trophy, right? You guys are not in it for clicks. You guys are in it for wins. And you're in it for attention. You're in it for attention for your program. You're in it for the attention of a player. So, yes, the only difference, Dan, between you and Dion or Oregon and Colorado, Oregon is really good. Colorado, really bad. We'll go ahead and discuss those things and why the black community and now which has adopted Dion and Colorado University, we need to kind of chill just a little bit. Because I know, I know after that thing, after that um speech by the coach and everything and everything that's gone with Dion. I know where our community is going, and I can understand why we're going there with our community when it comes to some of the bullshit that has gone towards Dion, Coach Prime, and the Colorado football program, but relax. Relax. Let's look at it a little bit deeper. Let's get a little bit more educated before we start throwing that out there. We, we, we start Before we start kind of making... Um, not not the, the fools is not the is not the right word, but but before we start, uh, you know, screaming fire just for laughs in the theater, let's just kind of bring it down a little bit, open both eyes, third eye also, and uh, we'll get into that next. Wendell's Wendell Wallace here. That's me. Wendell's world and sports. Ready for war, Joe? How you wanna blow these spot? I know these dirty cops that'll get us in if we murder some wop. Hop in your helmet, the punishes ready. Meet me and Beatles with noodles, we do this do while he's slurping spaghetti. Everybody kiss the fucking floor, Joe. We crack, fuck them all if they move. Noodles shoot that fucking whore. Dead in the middle of little, literally little. Did we know that we riddle to middle man who didn't do diddly? Here to be a cold day and how the day I take it now. Make no mistake, for real, I wouldn't hesitate to kill. Until a fat one that you love to hate, catch you at your mother's waist, smack you then I whack. You with my stuff, Jay. I 
I'll rub your face off the earth and curse your family's children like Amityville and drill the nerves in your cavity filling. Insanity's building a pavilion in my civilian. It can't be the energy that humanity's filling. I'm filling without remorse. Who's willing to out your boss forever and take all the chatter like child support? I support punning anything he does, anything he loves. A brother from another mother sent for the above. A dark nigga just like me, one of the best might be. Even better, leaving niggas kneeling on their right knee. Spike Lee couldn't paint a better picture. You small change. Windows World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. College football, going to dedicate this segment to uh, Coach Prime in Colorado. If you listen to my last podcast, I predicted this would happen. In, in fact, I thought it would be a lot worse what Oregon was going to do to or- was Colorado. The, the, the reason why I, I just want to get this out here. Because the 15 minutes of fame that was rewarded to Colorado is now somewhere after this loss. It's probably been cut in half. Now we're at about seven and a half, seven minutes left before we can kind of go ahead. We're still young in the season concerning college football. So we're looking for things to interest us. We're looking for things to uh, capture our attention. And, and, and let me tell you something. What Deion Sanders has done so far at Colorado with the players that he has especially after coming off the season that Colorado had last year, was what is impressive. It should be spoke about. And, and, and look, here's a guy coming in primetime, Deion Sanders, a guy who's one of the greatest players in NFL history, one of the greatest quarterback, cornerbacks, if not the greatest cornerback in NFL history, and what he's doing coming from an HBCU school, just Deion Sanders in itself taking this endeavor. There's never been a player of his magnitude. There has never been a player like this, Deion Sanders, doing what he is doing. This would be the equivalent of Joe Montana coming back and coaching Stanford or Joe Montana coming back and trying to resurrect a down program or or um, Jerry Rice coming back and, and trying to do something. I mean, it's one of those deals. We're, we're speaking about one of the highest profile athletes who have who has crossed over to become a public figure. He has passed the Marie Wallace test. What do I mean by passing the Marie Wallace test? My mom, Marie Wallace, knows nothing about sports. Nothing. Zero. She don't care about Super Bowls. She don't care about sports teams. If sports went away, if all of a sudden the Lord came down and said the NHL, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, soccer, boxing, USC, Taekwondo, tennis, golf, and everything that's resembling it, I'm taking it up. I'm, I'm, I'm wiping it out, right? My mom wouldn't even notice. Wouldn't even notice. My mom cares absolutely zero about sports. My mom knows who Deion Sanders is. She can't tell you what position that he plays, or she can't tell you anything about his career, or she can't do anything like that. But my mom does know Deion Sanders, and at the very least, he knows that she knows that he plays sports. Just like my mom knows who Michael Jordan is. Just like my mom knows who LeBron James is. And that's probably about it. So what I'm saying is that a situation where you have such a rarefied, celebrated, well-known athlete like Deion Sanders, Hall of Famer in the most popular sport in this country, the racist, ignorant, divided states of America, now making that move to become a coach, a college coach. It's huge news. That's going to get people's attention, especially when Dion is going to get out there in front of every camera, every microphone, and tell you about it. 
He's going to let his personality shine. He's going to let his swag shine. He's going to let his blackness come through. He's going to bring our community. He's going to bring my community. He's going to bring the, the, the communities in Liberty City. He's going to bring the communities from Watts. He's going to bring the communities from Northwest and Southeast D.C. He's going to bring the communities from Richmond. He's going to bring the communities down in Texas. He's going to bring the communities, the black communities from all over the country. He's going to, we're, we're, go, we're going for the ride with him. Because we can identify, because we're there, because we're from that community. We know what it's like to be walking every day in the skin color that Deion Sanders is walking in. We know about the characteristics. We know about the swag. We know about the culture. We live it. We are it. So when Dion puts that out there for them, for those who either, A, don't know anything about it or ignorant about it, or think they know about it, but they really don't, and Dion is being, shall we say, 100% black. He's being 100% swag. He's being 100% Negro. And he's doing great things in Boulder, Colorado, which has a black population of less than 1% taking over a team that was horrible. Well, yes, that's going to get people's attention. Hell yeah. Now, when you are steep in that in that in that part of the community because not all of us walk around like the other we don't black folks aren't identified real black folks this that or the other they're not it's not like if you are you know if you don't have that Dion swag and you don't have that Dion confidence and you don't have that Dion persona and, and you're black somehow some way you ain't truly getting down you ain't keeping it for real none of that kind of nonsense no but that's part of our community which we are proud of either you have it you don't have it we are proud that Dion is showing off that part of our community but unfortunately when you have that when, you, when, when Dion brings that part of the community to the masses, there's going to be some ruffles, the feathers that he's going to ruffle. There's going to be some people who aren't going to like that. They're going to see it as braggadocious. They're going to be seeing it as arrogant. They're going to be seeing it as highfalutin. They're going to be seeing it as always. And what do we say? When, you know, the old shut up and play basketball, shut up and dribble type of type of thing from a lot of folks. And let's, let's remember, folks, I'm sorry to say this. And I'm starting to keep bringing it up. There's a reason why I say we live in the racist, ignorant, divided states of America, because guess what? This country is racist, this country is ignorant, and this country is divided. So, yeah, you're going to see some folks, and, and not just white folks who want to see Dion do poorly. I'm quite sure there's a lot of black folks in Jackson, Mississippi, who are also rooting for Dion's downfall. Because Dion came to Jackson State and basically used Jackson State to get where he wanted to go, which was a higher, better, bigger coaching job. And let's not, you know, and, and let's not uh, claim that Jackson, Mississippi and Jackson State is completely innocent in this we were were used, we were bamboozled, we were uh we were taken advantage of, we were hoodwinked because Jackson, Mississippi and Jackson State used Deion Sanders to get a lot for their program. So it was a used used type of situation. Dion used Jackson State just as much as Jackson State used Dion. But still, I'm quite sure when Dion was talking about HBU, HBCU this and HBCU that, and we're HBCU and I'm HBCU down, and then the first opportunity that you get to use to leave an HBCU school, you do that? Of course there's going to be some hard feelings. Of course there's going to be some animosity. Of course there's going to be folks out there talking about, really? This guy was talking about how he's so HBCU. Well, then why in the hell, after two years at, at, at Jackson State, he couldn't wait to get the hell out of there? 
If he was so down with HBCU, why was he interviewing for the TCU job? Why was he interviewing for the Auburn job? Why was he interviewing for the Colorado job? Why was he, if he was so HBCU down, why was he so eager to take one of the worst coaching jobs in college football, which was Colorado's football program? If he was so swag and he was so HBCU down, what's that about? So, yeah, it's just not... Your typical, I hate black people, they're all niggers and no good coons, this, that, and the other, you know, who are driving pickup trucks and waving the American flag and waving the Confederate flag on the back of their pickup trucks and, 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 and beater shorts who are sitting up there who we should be kind of chastising or, or pointing to to say those are the people, the stereotypical folks, of those are the type of people that want to see Dion do poorly. I mean, there's a lot of black folks, maybe not a lot of black, but there's a good number of black folks, more than what my community will admit to. There's black folks out there that are just as happy to see Deion Sanders getting his ass whooped by Oregon on Saturday. So the black community now has adopted Deion Sanders as its team, right? And, um, you know, it's no different than when, you know, it was no different. Colorado had become the black community's college football team, just like Miami was the, the, the U back in the day, just like my Georgetown Hoyas and the John Thompson was when it became the black community's college basketball program. There's many black folks out there during that time who thought that Georgetown was an HBCU school because when they looked at the television and saw Georgetown basketball play, all they saw were brothers out there in a, in a, in a, bla- in a big six-foot-ten loud boisterous, articulate, and intelligent, and proud, and strong black man on the court who didn't say yes to balsa and no to balsa and try to play nice with the white folks. So, of course, we're going to gravitate for black folks. Of course, we're going to gravitate toward that. Living in a racist society that we live in, of course, we're going to gravitate toward something like that. So, I, I can understand the passion. I can understand the enthusiasm. I can understand the energy and the love that we have for someone like a Deion Sanders, who truthfully, when you're speaking about persona, when you're speaking about rubbing people either the right or wrong way, polarizing figure, I can probably say that he is the closest to what we've had when John Thompson was uh, doing his thing about, what, 36 years ago, somewhere around there, or maybe 39 years ago, somewhere around there, where he was making white folks feel uncomfortable. Deion Sanders makes some white folks feel very uncomfortable. Whether that be coaches, whether that be administrators, whether those who don't live in communities, where there are black folks who get their knowledge of what black folks are all about from Fox News or listening to uh, fucking assholes like um, this piece of shit. Uh, who's this guy? Um, oh, my goodness gracious. I'm, I can see his name, but I can't think about it. And I don't want to think about it because he's a piece of shit. The guy that's running for president from the Republican Party. You know, when, when you listen to those race-baiting bait, race asshole racists, well, then, yeah, I can understand why it's pretty easy not to be liking Deion Sanders or to have some hate in Deion Sanders, shaping your ignorance. So, yeah, all of that stuff was baked into Colorado getting its com- comeuppance on Saturday against um, against Oregon. And guess what? It's going to continue. This is not, I mean, so right now, Little Wayne and Iraq and all these guys, I mean, you know, you, it's going to be interesting because this upcoming weekend, USC is really going to put the beat down on them. Number one, USC fell in the poll, polls. 
um, because of what happened with Notre Dame losing to Ohio State. So Ohio State moved up and such. So USC also needs to make a statement. USC also needs to make a statement, not just to the college football, the AP and the coaches, but they also need to make a statement to Dan Lanning in Oregon. They also need to make it to Kyle Winningham in uh, Utah to say that, uh, yeah, you think you guys are something? Let me let me show you what we can do. And also, as I mentioned before in my last podcast, that I think Caleb Williams is going to want to put on a show because if you remember, he was the star last season in college football. Now Shador Sanders comes in, and all of a sudden he's the one that's getting all the NIL money. All of a sudden now he's the one that's doing Zoom calls with Tom Brady. All of a sudden now he's the one that's flexing with the wristwatch. All of a sudden now he's the one driving around in a Rolls Royce. All of a sudden now he's getting all the attention on ESPN. All of a sudden he's the one that's getting all the chatter on the talking head shows. All of a sudden Shador Sanders in Colorado are, 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 are the spotlight. And Caleb Williams from Gonzaga High School in Washington, D.C., he's sitting up there saying, wait a minute, I- I'm sorry, who won the Heisman Trophy last year? I'm sorry, who's supposed to be the number one pick this year? I'm sorry, who's the quarterback for the team that's ranked number five or number six in the country this year? I- I- I'm sorry, who's the team that's ranked number five? Last time I checked, we didn't get blown up by a team 42-6 to six in a game which really, if Dan Lanning really wanted to rub it in, he could have won that game 84 to nothing. He could have named the score. If he was that petty, if he was that vindictive, he could have really, really uh, ran up the score and put a put a beat down on the uh, on Colorado. So, so, so black folks, we just need to chill. So, so, so basically, Caleb Williams on Saturday, he he's going to put on a show against Colorado. Colorado is a bad team. They're a bad, sorry, black folks. I, I yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know. You can call me all the names that you want to. But what happens is that all of a sudden now, one of the things Deion Sanders attracts attention from folks who don't follow college football. So they hear all the hype about, oh, they're 3-0 and and they're right 18th in the country and blah, blah, blah. And sensible people who have seen, who have watched, who know college football, even a little bit of college football, can sit there and say, nah, I don't think so. They're not as good as Georgia. I mean, they're not to put or to put to put Colorado in the same breath of a USC or a Michigan or an Ohio State or a Notre Dame or a Georgia or a Florida State, it's ridiculous. It's, it's asinine. So the fact that Colorado was ranked 18th after beating TCU by three, beating Nebraska, who's terrible, and then needing double overtime to beat a very poor Colorado State team, that launches you up to number 18 in the country. That was more based on the story itself, more than the substance that was on the field. And Dan Lanning in Oregon just wanted people to remind you that, yeah, that bullshit, it ain't real. And, 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 and maybe black folks were upset because basically what he was telling black folks was, y'all stupid. Y'all really thought Colorado was this good? Y'all gonna hype on? Y'all, y'all gonna get on that bandwagon? Colorado now is gonna become your Georgetown? It's gonna become this generation's Georgetown or University of Miami? Really? Really? Well, let, let, let me show you how wrong y'all are. And I'm gonna keep telling you that you're wrong. Every time that on fourth down and deep in our own territory, we're gonna go for a fourth down. We're gonna go for a a, a fake punt. All right. When I gave that. 
halftime uh, speech on the field talking about we're not done yet. That was a direct slap. That was a direct fuck you. That was a direct bullshit in terms for the black community. Because the black could that what Dan Lanning was saying was not only do y'all don't know nothing, y'all don't know shit when it comes to college football. Because y'all up there talking about go Colorado, go Colorado, go prime, go prime. Let me tell you, let me tell you something. Let, let me show reality to you. So maybe I can see a little bit of black folks saying, well, fuck you too, Dan. Fuck you. You got the best team. Ain't no reason why to beat us like that. Ain't no reason why when the camera's rolling, they asked Dan Lanning if they could bring the cameras in for that pregame speech before the game. And Dan Lanning was like, yeah, sure, come on in. He wanted us to see that. He was taking a shot of black folks saying, yeah, I want you to see this. I want you to see exactly what we're going to do. And then we're going to go out there and do it, which angered black folks who liked that program even more. Because it would have been one thing. That, that, what Dan Lanning did was something Deion Sanders was used to doing. I'm going to talk shit. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to whoop your ass. And then I'm going to prime. And I'm going to step. And I'm going to strut. And I'm going to smile. I'm going to put on my cowboy hat. I'm going to put on my sunglasses. And I'm going to say, I told you so. And we ain't even done yet. Without the cowboy hat, without the sunglasses, that's what Dan Lanning did. Dan Lanning did a Dion. You know, bring them cameras in. They got cameras following Dion everywhere. Bring them into my pregame speech in which I'm going to be giving. This ain't Hollywood, men. I'm sorry. This ain't Hollywood, men. They play for clicks. We play for victories. Ooh, man. Black folks said, ooh, that hurt. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, man, y'all y'all got to calm down. It, you know, it, it might have seemed that way, but it, it ain't. Man. I, I don't know Dan Lanning. Never met Dan Lanning. Let me tell you something, man. Um, that's just the way it is in college football. That's Jamel Hill. Black, the black communities, big sis, little sis, whatever generation that you're from. As for me, little sis Jamel Hill said, hey, look, she's been in plenty of locker rooms where that talk happens all the time. And when you're a 21-point favorite and you need someone and you need something to uh, keep that focus and get them ready to play, he did what he had to do. Now, I think Dion and Colorado, the national media, provided those Oregon players everything that they needed. They didn't need, they didn't need that speech to run through a brick wall and put a beat down and put an embarrassment on Colorado. The Colorado coaches, the Colorado players, the national media did all that for them. And not only did it do it for the players, it did it for them for the coach. So I think Lincoln Riley is going to try to one-up them. And, and just think the day comes when Colorado is going to be playing the team. Look, Oregon is ranked number 11. they got Bo Nix, Heisman Trophy candidate. You've got USC. Caleb Williams, uh, uh, the number one pick, best player in college football, one of the players who are going to be playing for a Heisman Trophy. Um, they're a well-known school. Lincoln Riley's a well-known coach. USC doesn't need Colorado shine to uh, keep their program going. They're still going to be getting the recruits. Their names are still going to be on the lips of people when they speak about the elite programs in college football. So they don't need Colorado. So while that beatdown is going to be something more, I think, in terms for Caleb Williams to kind of push Jador Sanders back in his place, I think when Oregon, or excuse me, when Colorado plays a team like, say, Washington State or Oregon State, who are ranked, who do have great players, the quarterback for Washington State is playing excellent football, and no one outside of Pullman or Corvallis knows what the hell is going on with that program. Forget getting beat up and beat down and embarrassed by Oregon and USC. 
Wait till Colorado plays Washington State and Oregon State. There's going to be much, 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 much more devotion and motivation to really go out there and put a beat down on Colorado. So if you think the next, the last week and next week or this upcoming week playing Oregon and USC, you think that's going to be bad for Colorado? Black folks, black communities, those who are late to the bandwagon, black folks who don't know anything about college football, but they see a black man doing what he's doing in Colorado, and they see his Deion Sanders, and it's like, oh, yeah, Colorado, they're legit, they're for real. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe what Dan Lanning did. Oh, I can't believe what's being said about Colorado, racist, racist, racist. No, 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 no. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm not saying there's plenty of writers. I'm not saying there's coaches. I'm not saying there's players. I'm not saying there's fans. I'm not saying there's communities. I'm not saying that there's not a percentage of folks who just don't like Colorado and just don't like Colorado because the coach is black and the players are black and God damn it, they have the nerve to be gushing. They have the nerve to be not just splashing, but putting buckets and buckets of blackness on us. Open up our mouth and just throw buckets and buckets of blackness down our throats. We hate that. We don't like that. We don't like black folks, blah, blah, blah. There's a plenty of folks out there Toward Colorado, who had that attitude? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But to say that's an overriding factor, or to say that that's something that's really um, that that that's really uh, penetrating, or something that really needs—that's that's not it. Sylvester Cruz was the first black coach at Mississippi State in the SEC. Marcus Freeman is the coach at Notre Dame. Tyrone Willingham was the first black coach at Notre Dame. Charlie Strong coached at Texas. This is not a fun, this is, black coaches, while it's few and far between, and while there's a racist element that's uh, involved in this, and while we definitely need to get better, uh, th this is not a situation where um, Deion's getting hate black folks, black people, black coaches, no, 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 no. No, there have there, been other instances where Charlie Strong taking over Texas, Tyrone Willingham taking over Notre Dame, um, taking over historic programs. Marcus Freeman, for what, 36 years old, taking over uh, Notre Dame, where you know there's, there's, there's other instances where if it was really all and nothing about racism, we would have heard that stuff years and years and years and decades ago. So, no, while there's a racist element, black folks, black community who might not know anything about college football, yes, there is. But to say that the overwhelming um, uh, that there's an overwhelming presence surrounding that? No, there's not. There's not. Not in this case. And like I said before, God bless <laughs> God bless Colorado and Dion, a team that's not very good. I mean, when you go, you, you can't take pieces of garbage and turn it, you can't, you can't go to the, uh, the junkyard. If you're building a car, you can't go to the junkyard and take the worst scraps and buy yourself a Lamborghini that's going to resemble a 2023 beautiful Lamborghini that's going to act like a 2023 new car. You can't do that. There's a reason why Dion had to get bits and pieces and 80-something transfers from other schools. None of those other the, – the, the, the guys on the team from the year before weren't any good. And he had to get the cast off from other teams. Basically, Colorado is an expansion team. And this ain't the NHL, and we ain't playing in Las Vegas with the Golden Knights. So basically, Dion is taking an expansion team in Colorado. And when was the last time you ever heard an expansion team playing football in the first year doing anything? What Dion is doing, getting them the three wins so far, is impressive in itself. I believe in Dion. 
I'm rooting for Deion. I want to see Deion Sanders do well. And I want to see Deion Sanders continue to be Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders leaving Jackson State. Eh, I never really brought it, bought into Deion Sanders with 100% uh, swack, 100% HBCU to begin with. I always thought that Deion was using Jackson State to get a higher job, to get a higher profile. His ego, his persona, who he is, demands that he get a more a, a job with more attention, more spotlight, more opportunities to get into that spotlight. So it is what it is. But yeah, man, um, Colorado and uh, Dion and all the things, racism involved, absolutely. But is it the overwhelming factor on the heat and everything like that? Nah. No, I don't think so, and I can't go there with that. Hey, man, college football. I got to ask a question coming up after we boogie. Hey, man, where are the great teams? Where are the dynasties? Where are the Georgias, the Alabama? Where is the where, where where is the great team in college football this season? Because so far, through three, four weeks, I haven't seen it. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World and Sports. <laughs> segment of the podcast last segment of the program Wendell's World of Sports make this very quick week three of college football week four I don't know what it was week zero one two three September 23rd great games wonderful games Ohio State's comeback last second victory over Notre Dame 17 to 14 where Marcus Freeman for two plays only had 10 players on the field at least he owned it at least he owned it um I'm still didn't like Notre Dame. The only time I've liked Notre Dame is when they uh, hired Tyrone Willingham and Marcus Freeman. So I am rooting and cheering for Marcus Freeman, but bruh, you know better. <laughs> you can't have that, man. You definitely can't have that. Florida State's comeback over Clemson in overtime. Uh, hmm. Alabama bounced back performance against Mississippi. Very disappointed in Mississippi. Man, that, you know, especially in that fourth quarter is like, Lane, what are you – are you conceding already? There's a two-score game. You're about to be this offensive guru. And, like, with, I don't know, eight or nine minutes, six minutes, four minutes to go, you're out there playing like it's like it's no big deal. I didn't I didn't get I didn't get that. I, I didn't see the passion. I didn't see the energy and near the end of the game. I didn't even see the belief, not just from the players, but also from the coaching staff on Mississippi that they can come back. Do you want to remind you yeah, that Alabama had Jalen Milrow at the quarterback, a guy who really, really 
should have played against South Alabama, but you know what? Or South uh, Southern Florida, South Florida, one of the Florida teams. That's not Florida, but um, at least Dick Saban now knows game action with Milrow, Simpson, Buckner. Milrose the guy. So moving forward, don't think that's going to um, do anything in terms of Alabama competing for a national championship, but it's the best that they've got. So, look, the top 15 this week, Georgia's number one, Florida State's number two, Michigan number three, Washington number four, Texas number five, Ohio State number six, USC number seven. So USC fell to number seven from number five. So, yeah, that beatdown that they're going to put on Colorado, it's going to be vicious. Number eight is Penn State. Number nine, Oregon, moved up two spaces basically by beating an expansion uh, college football team. All right, whatever. Number 10 is Utah. Number 11, Alabama. Number 12, Notre Dame. So Notre Dame goes from number 9 and number 12, losing in the last second against Ohio State. And Ohio State, how? So Notre Dame moves down three spots while Ohio State doesn't move anywhere. Well, I put them over Texas, even though Texas looked good against Baylor. I don't know. I don't know. Still early. Number 13, LSU. We had to hold on to beat Arkansas. Last, last uh, second field goal. Number 14, Oklahoma. There you go, Eric G. And number 15 is Duke. Duke. How about that? In fact, the game of the week, this upcoming week, is going to be Notre Dame at Duke. So isn't that something, right? So as I mentioned before, where are the great teams in college football this year? Now, you can make the argument because of NIL and because of the transfer portal, mainly the transfer portal, that because of this, this leads to a watered down. That, that college football has now become mediocre. The end of the College football has become the NFL, right? Where everybody has a better chance to win, blah, blah, blah. There's really no great teams, right? In the NFL, we bemoan the fact, some of us, that the opportunity to have a team that resembles the 1970 Pittsburgh Steelers or the 1980 San Francisco 49ers or the 1990s Dallas Cowboys or the 1980s New York Giants or the 1980s My Washington Football Squad. The, 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 the dynasties are now gone, even though New England and Tom Brady are looking around saying, uh, excuse me, how many Super Bowls did we win? Six six Super Bowls? Hello. But yeah, for the most part, what, because of salary cap, hard salary cap and such, keeping a dynasty it's hard to do. You you can't have great defenses and great offenses. You you can't have like for instance. I I keep going back to the uh, seventy Steelers, but Franco Harris, Hall of Famer. Lynn Swan, Hall of Famer. John Stallworth, Hall of Famer. Franco Harris, Hall of Famer. Rocky Blyer, a couple of levels down from being in the Hall of Fame. Mike Webster, Hall of Famer. Then on defense, you have Mean Joe Green, Hall of Famer. Mel Blunt, Hall of Famer. Elsie Greenwood. I believe that he's a Hall of Famer. If he's not, he should. So, so basically, those teams were stacked. Were stacked. You can't have that in the NFL these days. You can have five or six or seven players in their prime playing on the same team that are guaranteed Hall of Famers. Just going to uh, – because of the hard salary cap, that's not going to happen. So here in college football, where for years you had Alabama, you had Clemson, now you have Georgia, but the, the, these these dominant squads, right? The Notre Dames of Nick Rotney, uh, the Army Navy back in the uh, the teams back in the thir- back in the thirties and the forties, Bud Wilkinson's Notre Dame football team, all of these great dynasties in college football that will live on forever. 
and in, in, in every of the um, college football fans' generations to come, right? Joe Paterno with Penn State, right? Bobby Bowden with Florida State. Um, uh, the, the Barry Switzer with Oklahoma. Tom Osborne with Nebraska, right? Those dynamics, I mean, for those who are old enough to really love college football, when I say those names, when I say those coaches along with those teams, doesn't they kind of get a little tingly? Doesn't that kind of put a smile on your face, right? Doesn't that kind of give you like an energy jolt? Doesn't that kind of make you feel good, even if it's just for a, a brief second or for a brief moment, that, that a positive thought comes into your mind, that a good thought comes into your mind when, when I speak about those coaches, right? Isn't that true? When you speak about those, those, those iconic coaches and those iconic teams, right? Have, have we lost that? Now, I know you can make, hey, wait a minute, Wendell, what are you speaking about? We just got through with Nick Saban winning, what, six or seven championships over a, over a 14, 15-year period at Alabama, and now we've got Kirby Smart who's going to be trying to do something that no team has done in college football for the, since uh, 1938, which is to win three national championships in a row. We, we see the impact that Deion Sanders has had in college football. Well, what, what are you speaking about where we're, we're lacking that we're, we're lacking that college football great team? I just don't see it yet. I just don't feel it yet. I just don't see a, a team where right now I say, man, that's a championship team right there. When Alabama had things rolling, right, with Tua, with Mac Jones, Right, even with AJ McCarron, there's been some certain teams in certain seasons. Clemson, when they had Deshaun Watson, or when they had um, um, uh, Trevor Lawrence. I mean, there's all there was always this team, even maybe Georgia last year, where you just looked at that team, it was just stud. It was just something when you just said, "Man, that that team right there, baby, that team's going to win a championship." And if they don't, it's going to be a miracle. Right? I mean, when USC with Pete Carroll, that mini, mini dynasty, when they were rolling, right? Same thing with John Rob John Robinson, uh, uh, Coach McKay, leading those teams at USC. Right? It was just like, man, iconic, man. Going to remember, man. They're going to be tough to beat, man. And when they do get get beat, you better beat them. And if you beat them, because they're not going to be giving you anything. If you're going to beat them, then it's going to be a game that's going to be iconic, like when Texas beat. Uh, when Texas beat USC in the Rose Bowl, when Vince Young had the performance of a lifetime, when Ohio State beat Miami, another dynasty that started with the Howard Schellenberger and went to Jimmy Johnson and ended with Dennis Erickson, right? I mean, I'm looking at, I don't see that team so far this year. And I'm looking to say, where are the contenders? Is it, is it Georgia? We all thought going into the season it would be Georgia, but they've been kind of like halfway sleepwalking again. Now, I was reading something from Kirby Smart speaking about when a reporter asked, hey, man, what's up? Is this Georgia just kind of like going through the motions? And Kirby Smart said on Monday that he doesn't see any self-satisfaction from his team four games into the season. He said, I think, our, I think the focus level each week has been good. The results always haven't. But the preparation is what's more important to me. I, I like I actually put a lot of value on Monday to Friday, mental makeup, disposition, 
practice habits improvements. Well, maybe he's seeing it on Monday, Monday through Friday, but he ain't seeing it on Saturday. Maybe because Monday through Friday, the player that they're practicing against are actually better than the team that they're going to be going against. So again, George is attempting to do something that hasn't been done in 87 years, which is to win three consecutive national championships. Not that since the mid-1930s when the University of Minnesota won three consecutive national championships. Carson Beck taking over the starting QB position from Stetton Bennett. Mm, six touchdown passes, three of which came against UAB, so does that really count? So he had the third fewest touchdowns of all starting quarterbacks in the SEC. I mean, he's done a good job taking care of the football with only one interception. That's fine, but I'm just looking. Does Florida State look like what's been the best win for a team this year, a top-tier team? What's been the best win? I don't know. Was it Texas versus Alabama? What we know now about Alabama? Was it Florida State versus LSU on the neutral field in Orlando the first week of the season for real? How good is how good is uh, LSU? A team that barely got by Arkansas. I don't know. I don't know. Still young of the season again, baby. This is but with college football, really, and and, and people want to blame NIL and the transfer portal and college football screwed up. Blah blah blah. Whatever, man. It's, I, do you like parody? Damn if you do. Damn if you don't. Because football, college football. One of the critics, one of the criticisms when college football before NIL and before the NIL and the change in the transfer policies, where I guess what college football was just awesome, it was perfect, it was wonderful, it was so much better, right? But basically, it was a regional sport because for the most part, it was the SEC and nobody else. Maybe throw in a Ohio State every now and then, maybe a Clemson, but for the most part, it was uh, Alabama, it was LSU, and one, it was one of those schools, right? Now it's Georgia. At, at least now, with NIL, the ability for players to transfer, you, you don't have, at least so far this season, you don't have just three teams from the SEC, uh, one team from the Big Ten, and then that's it. In terms of who can win a championship. I don't know who can win a championship. I don't know who can win a national championship. But it's nice to see that it's not going to be Alabama. It's, not, it's nice to see that it's not going to be Clemson. It's nice to see that you have teams west of the Mississippi who have transferred in, who have starting quarterbacks who aren't making impacts from the transfer portal. It's, it's nice to see them do well. I mean, black folks and other folks might not like Dan Lemming, but, I, but it's nice to see Oregon get some shine. It's nice to see USC. I know folks in Oklahoma might not, li- might, might not like uh, Lincoln Riley, but it's nice to see him bring his shine and his expertise over to uh, the West Coast and revitalize what's going on over there at USC. It's nice to see Washington State and Oregon State. It's nice to see those teams uh, doing some things. I mean, man, so it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Is it because of the transfer portal? Is it because of NIL that, quote-unquote, college football has become, quote-unquote, average? Do you like average more than just sitting back going, yeah, well, I know who's going to win this year. It's either going to be Georgia or or Alabama. One of the things, of course, that we're having a transition period with quarterbacks, right? Ohio State's bringing in a new quarterback. Um, Clemson has a relatively new quarterback. Alabama is trying to bring in a new quarterback. Georgia 
is bringing in a new quarterback. So some of the traditional powers of the last five or ten years, they're trying to acclimate their um, uh, the the offensive uh, uh, side of the ball with quarterbacks, new quarterbacks. So we'll see what happens. All right, good. I'm done. As Keith Olbermann would say, I have done all the damage I could do here. Thank you so much for listening to the program. As I send off, as always, man, I forgot to say it last week, but uh, there's some foolishness going around in terms of, hey, guess what? Slavery, good thing. A lot, some, some, yeah, people in bondage and change, bad. But there were some good things that came out of it. Please, please don't be so fucking ignorant. Please don't be so fucking dumb to rationalize such bullshit, such ignorant talk. Such racist talk. And if you have a mulchrum of belief that any of that bullshit is real, first of all, acknowledge the fact that you're one stupid motherfucker. Then educate yourself because that's what we need. We're coming up on some hard times here in the next, I don't know, 12 months or so, folks. And um, we need to rid our country of this plague, uh, which is led by Satan. Satan is real. Satan is real, folks. And his name starts with a T. In fact, his initials are DT. I'm not going to even say his name. I'll say fuck shit and all this kind of bullshit. I'll say these other curse words, but I will not say that person's name because that's 10 times worse than cursing. So we, we need to eliminate him. We need to exterminate him in his movement and his disciples. We need to let people of that ilk know that nah, that shit ain't happening. So you take the Ron DeSantis's, you take the Matthew Gates, you take the Louis Jordans, and you take those people, those race-baiting, power-hungry fascists, and let them know that we ain't having it. Either get going, either step in line, or step out. So there we go. We need love, peace, we need unity, we need harmony, we need all of that stuff in our lives. We don't need those assholes. So again, if you believe in any way, shape, or form that slavery was a good thing, to anybody who has been enslaved, first realize the obvious. You are one ignorant, stupid son of a bitch. Then do what's right. Educate yourself. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Get me out of here with some music.